welcome to What Do You Like? Um, I'm Maria. And I'm Hunter. And we like to talk about what people like and more importantly, what we like. It works when we like it as well. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to talk about it. Because as it turns out, people like talking about the things that we like. Go figure. Today's topic is role-playing games and specifically Dungeons & Dragons. The first role-playing game. What is Dungeons & Dragons or D&D or RPGs, role-playing games? It is a fantasy in at its basic form it is a storytelling simulator that uses dice to help people make decisions on how their characters move through the world that the game master or the dungeon master has created and i will say in every case as with anything there are exceptions to all of those things In theory, you could play a role-playing game with a deck of cards and on your own, so no Game Master. There are games that have no Game Master. It's just four people sit around a table and do stuff. I like to think of it as moderated improv, but where everyone's trying to do something. It's a cooperative for the most part. And it's also a lot of work with the players working together to figure out the story arc or this or the story that they have been going on it is usually starts with you all meet at a tavern you see the man in a dark or you see someone in a dark cloak at, in, at this at the corner of the tavern but fundamentally it's not limited by anything it's limited by your imagination yes so you can have a case where you're all neo-noir private investigators and something weird happened go find out or you all meet as prisoners and you're now escaping from prison. Surprise, now that's a story plot. And you might not even be in a fantasy setting. That that might be completely regular modern day setting and you have to live and you have to work with things given with the uh, abilities given to you. It's more, I personally like the fantasy setting. I think it's more fun. I like the spells. My current uh, character is a witch in the in the long campaign that we've been doing. Yeah, so do we want to talk about what campaigns we've done, just kind of as our quick bona fides, or do we want to start talking about a little bit more history? I would like to start at the beginning, which is, I will give you a very brief brief synopsis. There are way better ways to look into it, but it started in the 1970s when a game developer by the name of Gary Gygax with another game developer, Jeff Perrin, had created a battle simulator called Chainmail. Gary Gygax is from Wisconsin. Yes. Carry this, on. This all happened in a... This all started in a Wisconsin basement. Chainmail came with a 14-page supplement designed to bring the simulator into a fantasy setting, which was picked up by a teenager named Dave Arnson. And Dave Arnson decided to use that supplement to create a fantasy game, which he called Blackmore. He met uh, Gygax at a Gen Con through happenstance, and he and Gygax and he showed Gygax his game. And Gygax was so impressed that he asked for Arneson's notes and was mailed 18 additional pages for notes. And then he turned that into the first Dungeons and Dragons prototype, which he then had to publish himself due to lack of interest in out- any outside publishing. And that resulted in the company Tactical Study Rules Incorporated, or T- which will be known as TSR. 
at first hard to find, popularity and f- of the fluidity and freedom of choice within this game made it a hit in 10 years. Within those 10 years came a little known thing in the United States called the Satanic Panic. And I'm going to jump in very briefly and say this was something real dumb. Because with the Satanic Panic, you don't know. It was the belief that there were groups of people trying to summon demons and worship Satan by performing satanic ritual abuse. It didn't help that Anton LaVey created the Satanic Bible. (laughs) I know what he was going for, and I'm fine with that. But due to a chain of events, for example, uh, the artwork on the covers had demons on them. So, and people who were be, who were like behind the fervor of the satanic ritual abuse beliefs, they didn't bother reading the books because obviously the books are satanic because they have a demon on them. <laughs> like I said, this was real dumb. You know, it was, these were the same people that thought preschool teachers were flushing kids down toilets. But another part of it was there were two major suicides where the victims were teenagers who happened to play D&D. James Dallas Egbert III had known mental health issues, but D&D and his interest in it was decided that that was the reason for his suicide. The other one had a much more lasting effect. Irving Lee Pulling uh, happened to play the game, which gave his mother a scapegoat when he committed suicide. And she sued TSR for closure and founded BADD, which stands for Bothered by Dungeons and Dragons. Um, their argument was that it was a fantasy role-playing game which used demonology, witchcraft, murder, satanic-type rituals, and demon summoning. And this whole argument cycled back under the idea that Dungeons & Dragons can manipulate kids and that if their characters die, they would be compelled to kill themselves. Like I've said, it's real, real dumb. Like, fundamentally, this is... People not understanding it, not actually wanting to understand it, and just saying, oh, it's a new thing? It's bad. This is not a subtweet of anything happening today. No, of course not. But what I find interesting the more I looked into this was what TSR did to combat this idea, because they didn't just stay quiet about it. They sent one of their writers, a man named Frank Mentzer, Uh, as a spokesperson to do the rounds on the talk shows. And every time that there was a psychologist or religious leader who was under the firm belief that D&D was the result of rituals, Metzer would come up and he would say, okay, well, I'm going to play D&D right now in front of you. And he said, well, I cast Fireball. And And that helped break the fantasy. The idea of taking turns resulted in a ritual which was actually just speaking and just dictating what your character was doing. And it broke this fantasy that everyone who was under this belief that D&D was this satanic demon summoning cult, it kind of pulled back the veil and showed that, no, this is reality. Magic doesn't exist. Yeah. As with many things... People are very good at telling reality from fiction, especially kids. Yeah, there's a little bit where it's like, hey, maybe don't get exposed to it too young, but D&D is a theater of the mind. If you can think it, you can tell that it's not real. You're thinking it. One of the things I did also think that was interesting was Menser also happened to be on a talk show where the other voice 
was a psychologist who had been part of a court case where he was in support of the defendant. It was a murder case, and the person who was being charged with the murder said that he did it, but that D&D was the reason behind it. That was his argument, and the and the psychologist was saying, yes, that was the case. And so Metzner got to talk to that guy. Isn't that fun? One, another thing was uh, James Louder, who wrote novels for TSR, connected to the D&D fantasy world, which another thing is Arneson started this with the Tolkien character fantasy. So orcs, goblins, elves, wizards was that they took out the pictures of the demons in the books as kind of to assuage the idea of Satanism, and that kind of worked. They were still fielding calls of concerned parents about their kids playing D&D in the early 90s. But from his recollection, they were pretty positive conversations because it wasn't people, for the most part, demanding that they stop. It was more just concern, and once they explained what was actually happening, it helped them understand it. For example, he said he had a father that was a Methodist preacher and he and his father read the book and he loved it. Yeah. It meant that the parents could switch from being, oh man, little Billy's summoning Satan to, oh man, little Billy's going to be really good at math and a deep, deep loser. And an, yeah. <laughs> yes, he will. <laughs> Coming from two people who, you know, play a lot of D&D and other role-playing games. And enjoy listening to D&D campaigns. Yeah. I, Ultimately, the satanic panic was someone going, this is a new scary thing, and religion's losing its hold on people. Ergo, this new thing is taking over from religion. But it's not actually based in anything, and it is a lot of people just saying, I want to be more powerful, and not actually, you know, having necessarily real complaints or having an accurate understanding of what the thing is, but they don't want to have an accurate understanding of what the thing is, because if they have that, then they start looking like fools, and you can't have that. Yeah, you've dug too deep. So, after that whole thing happened, unfortunately, TSR was not going to last. It made a bunch of bad business decisions, some of which included publishing decisions, others included not letting Gygax create competing games, role-playing game ideas that he had, and suing him, which, you know, that's a great PR stunt. And Gygax and Arneson were both kind of treated poorly due to TSR management. However, as they were hemorrhaging money, Wizards of the Coast, who you might have heard of from our previous episode, bought them. And they bought them with the idea that they wanted to keep this game in the hands of gamers. And they did this by working with a publishing group called Five Rings Publishing. And they bought TSR in 1997. Those in charge of the transition ultimately made sure to mend fences with Gygax and Arneson and making sure that they got the royalties that they deserved for help creating the game. I mean, magic was invented to fill the time between rounds of D&D. Like, literally, the inventor of magic, Richard Garfield, has publicly stated, yeah, I wanted to make a game that you could play in the downtime of Dungeons & Dragons. 
ignore all of the other implications of what that says. It is cool that the company that ended up owning Magic now owns Dungeons and Dragons. So now the two of them can play together, which is really neat. From there, this game and other RPGs like it have gone through many different iterations. You have usually how you start is you got your player's handbook and your dungeon master's handbook. And you create your characters with your party members and the DM. And all that's left is to start in your adventure. Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to handle different adventures. Most common, and what I would recommend for most first-time players, is try to find somebody who's played Dungeons & Dragons before, so that way they can teach you some of the hooks. If you can't find that, get a book, get a pre-made campaign. Usually they're called something like one-shots. They'll give you a quick guide of, hey, this is what's going on. This is how it all works. You really just need the player's handbook, and you don't even necessarily need that. Like, as long as somebody has it or you can find it with, uh, I think there's an online app that handles a lot of it. You can just go through that and you don't really need the handbook. It makes things easier, but you don't need it. If you are interested in the game but aren't sure how to go about playing it, because a lot of it is, if you're just said, here you go, you're a human fighter, go explore the world, maybe it's a little overwhelming and you don't know where to start. There is a lot of media out there that you can listen to or watch that is the people doing campaigns. Yeah, they are actual plays is one of the one of the main ones. Basically, it's a podcast where they're going through a campaign. The one caveat that I will put on that is remember that they are professionals and that you likely aren't. If you are a professional DM and you're listening to this podcast, why? I, well, I have questions. Thank you, but I have questions. Yeah. Contact us. Yeah. But it does, I would say, give you a small taste of what it could be. It's just not going to be what you get first off the bat, or maybe even second. For better or worse, Critical Role was the thing that really got me into wanting to do my own campaign. First one I played, I knew it was not going to be the same. Not a, No one can replace the players because they're individuals just like you and you can't be exactly like them. Also, they're professional voice actors and they are very good at improv. Another campaign that I like to listen to uh, is from this group called The Escapist. It's called Adventure is Nigh. And that is a lot less structured, I would say. Yes, everyone is working very much together to figure out their characters, but I think the general idea is they're a little less moral than the critical role groups. As far as I saw, things kind of changed from campaign to campaign with critical role, but Adventures Nigh is very much a, we want to make a nightclub. <laughs> yeah, another good group is Loading Ready Run. They do a periodic series called Dice Friends, where they play a bunch of different versions of RPGs. I think Escape from Simolo Plateau is the main D&D one that I can remember, but they've done a bunch of other stuff. They also have done a popular uh, vampire uh, RPG called Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah. And I guess the last one, the one podcast that I just enjoy just because it's so ridiculous is Dungeons and Daddies. 
Not a BDSM podcast. They have made that very, they have tried to state that over and over again. So please stop searching and hoping for something different than what it is. Or do. I mean, I mean if, it's if still that's funny. what you want, you can, you can find it. Yes. If you want this podcast, we'll put a link in the description. <laughs> Besides Dungeons and Dragons, there are other games and those games come with their own mechanics. Different games will have very different feelings. So Dungeons and Dragons, I think, is really tactical. It's very much a, you put your guys on a map and you move them around and movement is a huge part of playing D&D. Um, combat's a really big part of D&D as well. So always be considering that. Yeah, I think with all of these games, emphasis on the role playing is everyone is playing this game differently. There's some people that just want to, that are more interested in a plot others that are more interested in a free world, others that want to focus on role-playing and focus on their character, and others who like the tactical part of it and like the fights. This is a game about communication. It's about working together. It's about realizing you are not the main character. You can be the, like, in-part main character with your other group, but no one is going to just follow you around, like, mindlessly. You want it to be collective action where you can. Just make sure that your group is okay if you're just going to be, you aren't going to be aiming toward the same thing. Make sure everyone knows that going into it. Because some games are really good with that. And you can get a lot more body out of these games if you have that dynamic where you have one person who wants something and a different person who wants something similar but different. As long as everyone's on the same page and is very clear with, you are not your character, I'm going to repeat that one because it's really hard and it's really important. You are not your character. If everyone's okay with that, you can have a lot of fun with being someone being treacherous. Yeah. It is important to meet before the game actually begins to figure out your characters and figure out what you want to do. Because a lot of issues that some people run into when they play these is that they don't, other people want different things out of these games. And sometimes the group that you're with won't necessarily work, but it's better to figure that out sooner than later. And that I don't think should be a deterrent for you to continue playing D&D. Every, there is a group out there for everyone. You just have to be able to set your boundaries and be able to communicate. Right. And it's always important to find the people that you enjoy spending time with. Because if you don't enjoy spending time with them, D&D can be a large time commitment. Yes. Our long-running game, we've been, it's been going for about three years. We meet about once a month. We met a little bit more often previously, but... It's once a month on Sundays, we meet for three to four hours to play. And we play not that much comparatively. Yeah. Uh, one of my coworkers meets once a week on Sundays with her group, and they've been doing that for four years. Yeah. Like, if this is something that you find a group that you enjoy, and it's people who are all willing to work together and get, get your timing to work, you can play a lot of D&D, and you can do a lot of different things. You can also rotate through DMs in a group. That ends up happening quite a bit, because if you don't have that, the dungeon master or the person in charge, air quotes, has to run this kind of interesting juggling act 
but we'll talk more about that in a little bit, I think. Yeah, Cause I once think, we get into the mechanics. Yeah, because I think, again, like we've said, there's a bunch of different systems that you can play. And even in Dungeons & Dragons on its own, you can set Dungeons & Dragons basically anywhere. You want to have a wizarding school, cough, cough. Copyright. You could, you could absolutely do that in Dungeons & Dragons. It wouldn't work great, I think. There's probably other systems that are better, but you could do it. There is, I believe, a RPG uh, setup and mechanics around the idea of a wizarding school. There's going to be mechanics for everything. The main games that I've at least heard of, there's GURPS, which is another D20-based game. Um, generic, universal role-playing system. That ends up being very generic, for lack of a better word. It's one that lets you do basically whatever you want, and there'll be some way to calculate the role. Dungeons and Dragons, which is a big one. Uh, Cyberpunk, you may have heard of it from the popular Infamous. Infamous. Infamous is a better word, video game. That was originally a pen and paper RPG. There's a game called Monster Hearts that's really interesting, where you are telling the stories of monsters in love, like monsters like classical werewolves and vampires and fairies and all of that. I'm, I've never actually seen it played, but it looks super cool, which is interesting. I've seen role-play game real plays of My Little Pony, of Call of Cthulhu, which is a Lovecraft-based RPG that has been around for quite some time, and I really like it. There's ones for superheroes. There's a uh, RPG called Warhammer, which is highly tactical. It's more working with armies rather than the individual. Other ones include, more recently, Game of Thrones, which I've listened, I've listened to some of that, and that actually looks really interesting because it's all about politics and manipulation. Yeah. We mentioned it really briefly previously in the episode, but there's a one of the more popular RPGs called Vampire the Masquerade, which is set in a setting called the World of Darkness, which is effectively our world, but a little bit different. And there's, I believe, six or seven different variations on different games in the World of Darkness. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, I think it's Hunter the Reckoning, Werewolf the Apocalypse, something about changelings. There's one where everyone's dead and you're trying to be ghosts to bring people to closure, which sounds super cool, but oh my god, that sounds really hard to play. Man, it's the World of Darkness is really interesting because you set it in, in you don't have to do this, but most people set it in the city in which they live. So it's just like, oh yeah, that place that you know and that you can go to, yeah, that takes on a different affect now that you're playing it in game, which is really, really neat. Yeah, so if there's some type of world that you want to explore, I'm pretty certain you could find if there's not a system out there or a game out there already made, you could probably help with someone's help make what one for your own or even make a character based off of a popular character you like. And if you're running your own home game, which you should do, if you're careful and clever with it, you just steal plots from TV shows and throw your characters into them and find out what they do. And the more you do it, the better you get at role-playing, and so your characters can act more based on how you think they would act rather than what is the logical way to act. 
or the way that you would act versus the way your character would act. That is a challenging thing to do. Yes. But it's really rewarding when you can sort of get out of your own head, walk around in someone else's. Yeah. It's super fun. I do really like role-playing. It's really nice to get out there, try some different stuff, play a character that's a little bit different than you, kind of think through how you'd want, how you think this person would react to it. And because you're in control of that person, you can say, this is how they react to it. Yeah, like with anything where you have to interact with people, it's not going to be perfect. Which is why, you know, I bring it back to the idea of make sure you talk it through and make sure you know your boundaries and the boundaries of others. Um, Bring this stuff up. And it's referred to as a session zero. At least that's what I've heard it referred to as. But usually that ends up being you either show up with an idea for your character, work with everyone to sort of build it out, or you show up and say, I know nothing about what needs to happen. Tell me what we want to do, and I'll build a character to fit it. There's probably at local game stores, there's always, there's probably going to be, if not a D&D night, at least people there who are well-versed in the game itself. Most local game stores, if they have a gaming space, will do at least some sort of monthly learn-to-play-D&D. Give that a look, because if you have a friendly local game store, it's always cool to go see it. And then you also can meet new people. And then, hey, maybe you find a group that needs someone else. Or you find a group of a bunch of new people who want to try this out. And it's moderated by the employees. Yeah. So in most cases, there'll be someone there. There may even be someone who's being the dungeon master and is saying, okay, this is how this is going to work. Sort of speaking as someone who's done a lot of, not a lot, I've done a reasonable amount of being the dungeon master for stuff. There's a really good video called uh, from Shut Up and Sit Down that came out a couple months ago that basically is talking about role-playing games. And the main thing to remember as a dungeon master is you are not the focus of this story. Your players are the focus. So you need to keep your characterizations and all of your stuff real simple. <laughs> Bring it down to brass tacks, professional wrestling level characterization. Keep it real simple because then people will pick it up and that's what they'll remember and then they can run with it. And also remember that your characters are going to go in a different direction. So build out Nine times out of 10. Build out a world that they can go explore in and then put hooks where you need to. There's a series on YouTube called The Crap Guide to D&D where it talks about each of the classes and when it got to the dungeon master the guy who makes it says, just remember, as the dungeon master, it's your job to carefully craft out these it, this intricate story and then watch your players stomp all over it and run behind them trying to catch up so that they're still having a good time. Really, you can set up your game to be confrontational if everyone's okay with that. But it's a lot of fun to have a dungeon master who's always watching, not necessarily saying a lot, but is catching what the different characters are saying to one another. And the little things where it's like, oh, you had you said that and you wanted to go look at that? Cool. Here's a little seed to go look at that. And remember, everything doesn't necessarily work. The dice are the things that decide how the story will progress, which I think we can now go on to. How do you actually play this game? Yeah. So it depends on the system that you're playing. We'll go with D&D because that's the one that I'm most familiar with and Maria's most familiar with. Yeah. You will have... A character sheet and it'll look like a terrifying tax form don't don't panic don't worry about it 
you will have your six basic characteristics, strength, constitution, dexterity, wisdom, intelligence, and charisma. And for the listener, it's up to you to decide if I said that in a weird order just to annoy you. (laughs) But those six characteristics are what determine something about your character. These are generally based around 10 being average. So if you have a score of 10, 10s across the board, you're an average person. The highest most humanoids can get to is 20, so 20 would be superhuman. Like, that's the strongest man alive. You will also usually have a class, so something like artificer or bard or barbarian or fighter or cleric or wizard or warlock. There's a ton of different classes. And then there's a race, which is a different whole conversation to have. But generally, that's like, you're an elf, you're a half-elf, you're a human, you're a gnome, you're a changeling, you're an Azimar, you're a tabaxi. You're an orc. You're an orc. Half-orc, usually. Yeah, there's a lot of different things. And kind of broadly, D&D was a game that came out in the 80s, and there are parts of it that have not aged super well. Yeah, but the beauty of it is that you can ignore those parts. <laughs> you can modify around it. Yes. And there's a lot of things where most people will say, yeah, we, we shouldn't necessarily have that. Cough, cough, Tolkien's elves are a little exciting, and the... The orcs are really The orcs exciting. are a problem, so... <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing why I love Call of Cthulhu, because... For those of you who don't know, Lovecraft was a racist and an anti-Semite and misogynist. And that kind of appears in some of his writing and it's a little awkward. But if you don't like that, but you still love the seeping cold fear that his writing creates, you can just, you can create a hella gay Call of Cthulhu game where it's all people of color or, you know, or a nice collection of diverse people, and they all save the world, and I'm sure that would make Lovecraft roll in his grave, which brings me joy. But we're getting off topic. Character creation is, again, the starting point. Once you have an idea of what you want your character to be, you'll also get a particular set of skills, and you might get some equipment. In general, you should also have some sort of background, But this can be as simple as, I was a fighter for the army, now I'm not in the army. Now I'm a freelance adventurer. You want to have something that lets you figure out what this character is. And then from there, you build out your character and you throw him into a campaign. Then you see what happens. What most people start with is something called the first level character. And that's sort of a very basic, this is your first adventure, you're trying something new. And then throughout the time, if you keep playing this game and you keep enjoying it, you can level up your character. So you'll get more skills, you'll get better at stuff, you'll have different experiences. Uh, If your experiences haven't gone well, you'll get wounds and scars and that sort of thing. You'll get trauma. You'll get trauma. Uh, If you're playing Call of Cthulhu, you'll eventually go insane, but that's more complicated and I'm not super familiar with how Call of Cthulhu works. But... Everything is based around rolling a d20. And in general, if you're trying to do something and failure would be interesting, Hmm. you will roll a d20, add a relevant ability modifier, and see if you do the thing. That is really fundamentally what it comes down to. So you might have a case where you and the party are standing on one side of the river, 
You can see the other side of the river. The river is moving relatively quickly. You want to get to the other side of the river. The DM might say, you have a river in front of you. It's flowing uh, at about walking pace. You're in a thick jungle. You can hear the calling of birds. What do you want to do? What do you have at your disposal? Do you cut the trees down around you to make a raft? Do you try to swim across it? If you try to swim across it, you might die. (laughs) If you try to swim across it, you might get swept downriver into somewhere else where you weren't expecting to be. You try to cut down the trees to build a raft. Well, what lives in the forest? You might find that you cut down a tree that has a dryad in it, and she's very annoyed with you. Yeah, there's always this slight uh, possibility of chaos waiting in the wings, especially if you are around certain types of players who just thrive off of that, which isn't a bad thing. It just means you're doing a lot of running. Yeah, and you also don't have to. Like, yeah. Fundamentally, it also comes down to what your group wants. If your group wants to keep things sort of high level and keep things fairly loose, you want to basically treat it more as like a tourist trip where you're going through and taking cool photos and doing cool things. You can absolutely do that. That's honestly, that's pretty fun. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've done not exactly that, but I've done elements of that, running it as the DM, where a party was just kind of like, we want to go do something interesting. And then like, here's a world, figure it out. And that can be really fun. It can lead to everything feeling a little circular, which is the only, not the only downside, but what is one of the downsides where it doesn't feel like you're going anywhere. But you can also set it up in a way where your party isn't trying to go anywhere. Your party is trying to defend a town because that's where they live. One of our most recent campaigns that just wrapped up was in cyberpunk where we were defend basically defending the house where or the building where we lived from an intrusion from a rival gang and then figuring out what the hell just happened yeah and we didn't go looking we didn't start the game looking for it we were literally our three characters were just meeting up for the getting to know you icebreaker that was not going well (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> Which is normally how things go. Which is fun. <laughs> it's it is, fun. is super fun. Yeah. Our long-running campaign started off with three of the characters showing up in a town off a ship, being told, hey, something weird happened about an hour away from here, or about a day's travel away from here, and then being set on by bandits, and then turned into them realizing that there was an otherworldly cosmic entity trying to take over the world. And we adopted one of the bandits, much, much to Hunter's and the, and the bandit's chagrin. Yeah, it wasn't what I was intending, but it also worked really well, because then the bandit showed up later, because that's the other thing. And we thing. met his brother later. Yeah, <laughs> and the brother ended up giving them more stuff to do. We like, like him more. Again, like you can build out these really complex worlds with a bunch of stuff going on, Mm -hmm. or you don't have to. Like, I like doing world building. Yeah, it can be a very simple scenario, or and then build outward, and or it can stay kind of all rooted in one spot. It is up to you, the player, or the you, the DM, with the other players. Yeah, it is a collective story, so figure out what kind of story you want to tell. And the one thing I really like is uh, with the flexibility and the fluidity of the game 
is there is no quote unquote winning. There's no distinct end until you've decided to. With Monopoly, it ends when someone has all the money. That doesn't happen in D&D. There's ways you can say, yes, this character's story is done. But again, it's a story. You don't win a story. Mm -hmm. You don't really lose a story. You are telling one. And their story might be, might end with them dying. No. Because the roles just weren't in their favor. For our campaign, what I like is that not everything has to be solved with violence. There's ways that you can talk your way out of situations. And also, I think what you, I like you do as a, as a DM is that people who immediately you think are obvious villains are just people with a day job. Sometimes it is important to have that. This is an obvious villain. They will oppose you because that's what the story needs. But it's also really useful to build a world where... People are just wandering around. You've built a little clockwork world and things will happen. And maybe they'll happen one way, but you, the players, get thrown in as a wrench and something else happens. There might be a story where you become the bad guy. Everything was fine until you showed up. (laughs) Right. It is important to make the world feel lived in. It doesn't necessarily need to feel realistic, air quotes, but you need to feel like the story either means something or is engaging. And that can be a little tricky, but if everyone's working together and everyone wants to keep making it work, people will look past stuff. It's a lot of fun. I find DMing really rewarding. It's cool to be able to build these worlds and then be like, cool, go make stories in them. Here's a bunch of stuff that happened 800 years ago. Find out what happened. One of the locations that I set and sort of planted in our long-running game, we never came back to. Like, no one ever figured out what happened. I have a whole, like, story of what's going on, but it wasn't important to what the party was looking for. If we ever come back to it and the whole place is burned to the ground because we didn't do anything, that's how it happened. Yeah, then that is the plot hook. Yeah. Like, again, all of this stuff is... What you put into it is what you get out of it. And these are all things that your first campaign may not work exactly the same way. Your second campaign may not work exactly the same way. But go give it a try. If your first campaign doesn't work, it might just be that it wasn't the right mix of people. And maybe it wasn't the right game setting. Maybe it just wasn't the right time. Because that can also happen. Yeah, people might just not be available even though they want to play. And I think the reason why people like it because that is part of this podcast and we're trying we determine why people like it is it helps with creativity it helps people interact with each other and a lot of the people who play these games tend to be a little bit introverted i would say yeah it gives people a focal point to do something as our long-running campaign has gone we said we'll meet at five and at 5 45 we've gone okay now that we've caught up with everyone's lives we should actually get started. And then we play the game and then we have a we we have a potluck dinner. And so it really is just a glorified excuse to hang out with friends and also have us bounce off each other at while playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And I mean that long running campaign has also had nine different people in it at any given point. Mm-hmm. Like 
started online with four people, turned into six people, then turned into seven, then went back to six, and then went to five. Mm -hmm. Like, it's had a bunch of shifting groups. And if you get a big enough group, that can also work. I wouldn't recommend going much over five because it makes stuff take a long, long time. Yeah. Seven. This is a game of patience. Yeah. It's a game of patience. And D&D in particular, combat can take a really long time. But something like Vampire the Masquerade, depending on how you do it, you can play it way faster. Dungeons and Dragons, if you take away combat, you kind of take away a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's a little bit more interesting. But Call of Cthulhu, the way that they handle roles is you only make a role if something interesting would happen if you fail. So the example that they give in one of the books is you are chasing a car. What happens if you fail on this check? The car gets away. You crash into something. The car notices that you're tailing it and they start shooting at you. And it creates the a lot of these different, like, well, now what? <laughs> they also have the concept of pushing your failure, where you try it again to see if you can do it. But once you've failed once, something else will be modified by it. So if you fail twice, it's really, really bad. If you fail once and succeed once, eh, it's, you probably get something. Yeah, I, say, I would say one of the daunting things about this game is there's a lot of reading involved in the beginning. There's yes. also a lot of uncertainty because it is such a big open world concept. But again, it's a game of patience. It's a game of communication. With time, the game moves forward and it's every time you meet, a little by little, new things happen. Maybe you stay in the same town the entire time, but you, you know, focus on your role playing and people, you know, discuss different aspects of their backstory. That's not a, a lost day. It's still people bouncing off each other. It's still people interacting. Yeah. You are telling a story. Sometimes the story is a, the story of a quiet town and the small, the small dramas. Sometimes the story is there is a cataclysm on the way. Let's go fix it. Mm -hmm. I've said this previously, but what you put into it is what you get out of it. The more you put in, the more you'll get back out. Yeah. It's not always the same, but you get something. Hopefully, this inspires you to give role-playing a try. I really would recommend it. I think that even if you are new, new to the idea or new to the game itself, there's people out there who would be happy to show you the ropes because the game can only continue if there's more people to play it. Exactly. And there's a ton of writing about Dungeons and Dragons and all of these different role-playing games. There's a lot of stuff where you can go look at it, see how this goes, say, oh, that seems interesting. I'm going to use that yeah. in the future. And if you can find a group, that's great. If you find a random group, that can also work. There are tools to play games online. We use Roll20. Which is, yeah, Roll20, which yeah. is free. Or you can get the premium to get a little bit some nicer stuff but that handles free. that handles all of the complicated math of adding things together and handles the rules and lets you just focus on doing the role playing there's a lot of tools out there to make it easier to lower the bar to entry because yeah there is a bar to entry of you need to be pretty good with mental arithmetic you need to be able to read quite a bit you need to be able to synthesize a lot of different things but 
I also think that like a 10 year old and 11 year old playing with their parents, that'd be pretty cool. You should try it. <laughs> I st- it's a lot of fun. I, I know families that play together. I know friends who remain in touch because they have keep playing together. One of my favorite things to do is to listen to stories of what can happen during campaigns. There's a lot of funny scenarios just because the dice just didn't happen to roll the certain way. And there's always been a lot of laughs because of it. My personal favorite story is how the four horsemen of the apocalypse were nearly destroyed by an irate farmer because they kept rolling like nat ones, natural ones, so critical failures. There are always new stories and there's always different stuff that can happen. You can mitigate some of the bad luck, but sometimes you just want that bad luck to be the story. Like, sometimes you have a particularly pulpy section where it's just like, man, my main character is just a chew toy for the universe and they get one victory and it's like, all right, ah, they feel much better about this. Mm -hmm. My, My character in one of the recent campaigns that we did nearly died multiple times because he kept charging into things and then going, wait, I can't fight at all. Because you were a gnome with a bad arm. <laughs> yep. And sometimes, that's the other thing is it's really fun to play a character that is flawed in some way and learns, hey, maybe I should try to work with that. Again, <laughs> working great. with the DM creates a char- can create a character arc even if you aren't necessarily the main character. Yeah. So again... We hope that this inspires you to try out some role-playing games. Take a look. If nothing else, reading role-playing sourcebooks is also just really cool because it's got a lot of really good world-building. It's good ideas for writing as well if you happen to want to work on writing more. I mean, heck, you could legitimately write your story as if it were a campaign, rolling the dice, just playing solo. Or you could play a game uh, like The Quiet Year or A Quiet Year where you are drawing your story on a sheet of paper and that's your role playing is through the act of drawing. Like anything that you want to do, you can do in role playing. Yeah. That's where a lot of the source books are helpful because they take it from the literally infinite expanse to here's a smaller thing that you're going to focus on. And then you can play from it, play with it from there. It's really really cool. So I think that covers just about everything. Yeah. And uh, so we hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. Send us an email or follow us on Instagram. And uh, hope you have a good day. Bye.